0: So I want to start today... You can go ahead and turn to Psalm 23, by the way. You can go ahead and turn to Psalm 23. But we're going to start doing something new at our church. uh, Something that we have been thinking about doing for a little while, and we didn't know exactly um, how to implement it, but we knew that the Bible called us to do it. Um, And then given uh, this past week and our public statement regarding the chief of police and our desire for him to resign, um, that the elder board across uh, both Christchurch locations affirmed, Um, and the reaction that we received from the community. That was exciting, wasn't it? That was exciting times. Uh, I've come under further conviction that this is something that we should be ruling, running right now. Um, So every service, uh, we're going to take a moment before our sermons, and we're going to pray for the leaders in our communities. Now, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, it says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Amen. Now, maybe that means that uh, you've already been doing this on your own, in your own time, in your own times of prayer. You've prayed for your leaders, and I would say that's great. But I think there's something to be said of us doing it corporately and publicly in our services. And so what I'm going to be doing, uh, obviously the first one that we're going to pray for is our current chief of police, obviously, um, given the situation that's going on. That seems like a no-brainer to me. And I'm going to lead us in a corporate prayer, and then we're also going to take a moment there uh, to pray for our other churches in the area. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Um, we want to pray for the other churches in town too, right? And so before our sermons every week, moving forward, we're going to designate a specific local leader, and we're going to pray for them. And then we're going to pick a faithful local church, and we're going to pray for them. Now, heads up, full disclosure, just so everybody gets this going in. Um, Some of these prayers may be imprecatory. Y'all know what I mean whenever I say imprecatory? Have you ever read an imprecatory psalm? God, break out their teeth. You ever read psalms like that before? Those are David's prayers for certain leaders. Some prayers that you hear and that we pray as a church together may be imprecatory because a leader has chosen wickedness, and we want them to repent. Amen? Amen? We want them to repent and submit to all of Christ and all of life because all of God's law applies to all the earth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and therefore we're going to pray for that. And some of these prayers will be joyful prayers of thankfulness for a brother or for a sister in the Lord as they work and strive to follow all of Christ and all of life. Some of these prayers for churches in town will be prayers of repentance for those churches because they've left what the Bible actually teaches. And some of these prayers for churches will be prayers for dear brothers and sisters in the faith and saints as we labor together to build Christ's kingdom. So full disclosure, when I say, some of y'all are looking at me like this, Like deer in the headlights, you know. We're gonna pray the way the Bible prays, right? We're gonna pray the way the Bible prays. We're gonna teach what the Bible teaches. We're gonna live the way the Bible tells us to live. And that means sometimes we pray things that make us a little nervous. But that's gonna be okay, because we as God's people want to be people of His Word and nothing else. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to read these passages again. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4, through four, if you want to understand why we would do this, why we would pray for our civil leaders. First of all, then, this is Paul talking, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. That's in our case, we don't have kings, we have elected officials, civil rulers, civil magistrates. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So let's pray for our chief of police, Greg LeBlanc. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father in heaven, we confess that we have not obeyed the call to pray for your ministers in the civil sphere, your elected officials, and we repent, committing now as your people to do so corporately, and publicly. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we pray, and hear our prayers. Our Lord and King, our Father in heaven, we come to you on behalf of Greg LeBlanc and his eternal soul. He has demonstrated by his actions that we are aware of that he does not know you, and that he is in rebellion to you and to your ways, and we pray for his repentance. Lord, as we, your people, know the heavy hand of your conviction of sin, and we pray that you would rest it upon our chief of police. We pray that you would restore him to his family and his marriage, and that he would be united to you in Christ through repentance and faith. Father, we pray that he would see the error in his ways, not just in a professional lapse, but as sin and that he would be convicted to his heart, and that he would lay down his office willingly in submission to you and to your words. Father, we pray that if there are faithful believers close to him, that they would be wise counsel to him in this regard, that you would conquer the enemy in his ears and make way the path for your truth. We pray that the police department in our city would receive a good and righteous leader according to the standard of your law, and that your justice would roll down as a result, that the tides of death and destruction would be stopped, and that our families as a whole would pursue you again. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Now we move to the time we're going to pray for a local church together as the saints. Our first church that we're going to pray for is actually going to be First Baptist Opelousas. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As we pray for our brothers and sisters down the street. Our great Lord and King, we also pray for the saints of First Baptist Opelousas, that you would be with them as they search for a pastor, that you would help them in the ordering of their church according to your words and commands, that you would give them wisdom and discernment, and that you would send them a great and strong leader who submits to all of your words in all of life and who will lead them well. Father, we pray that you would be near them and they would know it, that they would know you and be comforted by you, and that the enemy would gain no foothold in that church. And if he already has, that it would be shaken and destroyed through your grace of confession and repentance. Father, we thank you for your saints, and we pray for many years to come of fighting together with them for the advancement and cause of Christ, his kingdom, and his glorious gospel. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Psalm 23 is where we are this morning. As we continue our, our walk through the, the Lord is my shepherd psalm, right? That's the, that's the one that we're talking about here. Uh, we, we've dealt with several things along the way, and I don't find it ironic at all that after everything that happened this week, after everything, we were, I don't know if there was a news station that did not talk about us, after everything that happened this week, that this is the place in the psalm in which we land. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. And so today... We study, and we read, and we learn together. Today, we're going to talk about the valley of the shadow of death. Look with me at Psalm 23. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? That's new, I know. You didn't see that coming, did you? Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. of the shadow of death Now we don't have any of those down here right like what's a what's a valley we don't have valleys here because we don't have hills we're in the plains. We're in the flatlands down here. The, the coastal plains, I believe, is the, is the way that it's described. There's We barely got hills. I have hills in my backyard, but because that's because a thousand years ago, that's where apparently the Mississippi River ran. Uh, they're not real hills. It's an old riverbed that used to be there from a thousand years ago. But we need to understand a little bit more about what even this geography is. Is talking about. Uh, now, I, I have family who live in, in Massachusetts, up in the in the in the Appalachian Mountains of western Massachusetts. So not over on Boston on the East Coast, but on the on the west side of the state. And they've got they live literally on, on the side of a mountain. And, and my grandparents are from there, my father's there, my sister lives there now. I have aunts and uncles up there, and periodically, you know, every now and then we'll go up there and we'll see somebody on occasion. And they've got this profound thing that happens. It could be you know the fall when the when the time starts to shift right the days start to get shorter and there's this crazy thing that goes down sunset up there sometimes happens at like 3:30 could you imagine that that's ugh, like that just makes me feel yucky inside now now why is that why why would the sun disappear so early because they live in a valley right they, they, they live in the, in the shadow. They live on the side of the mountain where they live in the shadow of the mountain. Are you following with me? If you, if you live in a valley, if you're walking in a valley, okay, between two mountains, by and large, your, your exposure to the light, to the sun, is going to be very little. You're, you're going to have mostly shadow. And as you look up, and I don't know if you've ever been on the west side of the United States before, but if you've ever been around the Rocky Mountains before, them, them not little mountains, right? It's, it's intimidating. I remember one time my sister was living in Washington state and we drove up, uh, or we flew up to, to the east half of Washington state to go see her. And then at one point we took a, we took a trip through the state to the other side, to to the Seattle side of the West coast. And if you want to go from east to west in Washington state, you're going to drive through the Rockies and it's terrifying. Okay. It's absolutely terrifying. As you're cutting through these these switchbacks, eventually the guardrails on the road just go away. They're not there anymore, right? Because they're going to assume if it's between you and certain death, you will choose you and not the edge of the cliff, right? That's their assumption. When you get around these big mountains, they're intimidating. They're awe-inspiring. Yes, that's true. But they're intimidating. And so as he's walking... Through this valley between these two mountainsides, okay? This is the picture that's being painted. And he's walking under the shadow of death. Now, now what does that mean? So he, he's walking through this valley, okay? But the shadow hangs over him the whole time. Now, notice it's, it's not death itself. Like the mountain hasn't crushed him, the mountain hasn't fallen on him, but he lives under the, the shadow of death. He lives under the, re- the reminder that one day, it's inevitable, death is coming, right? That, that's, what this is, that's the picture that this passage is trying to, trying to paint for us. One day, it's inevitable, we, we, me and you, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, meaning all of our lives are a reminder that death's coming, right, right? When you go to a funeral, you're reminded that death's coming. When you when you watch a show and somebody dies, you're reminded that, that death's coming. Whenever, whenever you have a goldfish and it dies, which they die apparently really fast, you're reminded that, that death is coming. Whenever you, whenever the freeze sets in and the leaves fall off of the trees, you're reminded that death is coming. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, you can die. Right? You can die. But what is David's response? Even though I walk what? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Now, who's got a reason? I, I will fear no evil. But who's got a reason to fear evil? David does, because he's fighting evil all the time, right? King David goes against Absalom, his own son. King David goes against Saul, who tries to pin him against a wall with a spear. King David goes against Goliath, who is ten times his size, He could kill him in a moment. David was just a young boy then. King David is going against all the other kings that are around him, raging, warring against him all the time. And he says, even though I have all of these reminders of death, I will fear no evil. Who's going to kill David. The evil people, right? Who's, who is David's threat? The evil that will kill him if it gets a chance. The evil that wants him dead. David has real threats to his life, often, regularly. But he's not afraid because David's response is simple. What's the worst they can do to me? And he knew what the worst they could do to him was, which was what? What's the worst they can do to me? They can kill me. Sounds fine. Bring it on. I will fear no evil because I have no fear of death because I know who my God is. I'm not afraid. What's the worst thing that the world can do to you? They can kill you. Bring it on. Let's go. See, this was the disposition of Christians forever. That's why we were missionaries to the rest of the world. That's why we died being missionaries to the rest of the world. That's why we courageously proclaimed the truth. This is why William Tyndale's dying words as he was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English was, Lord, open the king's eyes. Because he knew the worst thing that they could do to him was kill him. Bring it on. We've lost this. We've lost this. We now fear death. That was one of the strangest things that the COVID stuff did to us. It brought to the surface that suddenly Christians were afraid of death again. Right? Suddenly, we were scared to die. We lost that moxie. It was as though all of a sudden a bunch of folks that called themselves Christians started acting like death was what we should all be afraid of. No, God is who we should be afraid of. David makes it plain right here I'm walking through the shadow of death every day, every day. I'm reminded that I could die. He was the king, and then he was a king in the age where if somebody else wanted to be king, they would just kill you, and then they would be king. How many times did you read that in the Old Testament? And then this other king wanted to be king, so he killed that king, and now he was king. And then they was king for a little while. Then his son was like, "My turn to be king." Er, Dead king. That's the time that David was alive in. He literally lived and walked in the shadow of death every day, and he wasn't afraid. I'm walking through the shadow of death every single day. I'm the king. And a lot of folks hate my guts. But I'm not afraid of them. What's the worst thing they could do? Kill me? What's the worst thing they could do to me? Kill me. Bring it on. I think this is perfect for the season that we are walking through as a church right now. We are learning and learning more and more about how to engage The public and the civil sphere, about how to call the world around us to all of Christ in all of life. And we're beginning to practice it. I think this is perfect for us. Because in order to do that well, it means that what went down last week will likely happen again. Because this is our calling. This is who we are. We are the people of God called to proclaim all of God's words to all of the world and call the world to repentance in all of life. This is our job. This is what we're supposed to do. And especially in the instance of a public office that has entered into gross morality that has not only affected performance but is a reflection of everything else. We say, stop. God says, stop. And if anything, it proves to us just how incredibly lost, the place in which we are is. That the response would be things like, the church should stay out of politics. No. It is precisely because the church has stayed out of politics that we have gotten to the place that we are today. And we're back, baby. And we're not letting go. Listen. As we continue to learn, as we continue to grow, as we continue to engage more and more, here's the thing, we will be hated. So be it. Blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled for righteousness' sake, for my name's sake. What do you think the Bible means whenever it says that? What do you think was going through John the Baptist's head whenever he said to Herod, hey, stop sleeping with your sister-in-law. He was thinking I might be about to die. Bring it on they could kill me. So be it. I I legit had a thought this past week after everything started blowing up on the internet. I was like, you know, maybe I should buy some body armor. (laughs) I don't own any. Maybe I should look into that. I didn't. Or did I? But as we continue to walk through this valley under the shadow of death, one of the things that we must be resolved on as that when the evil rears its head we don't flinch but listen did you hear what I just said as we continue to proclaim God's truth to the world around us both personally in instances in which it should be done personally and publicly in instances in which it should be done publicly as we continue to do that evil will come out against you it will And you will be hated. But our job is to not fear it. That's our calling. I will fear no evil. The Bible doesn't say no evil will come at you. The Bible doesn't say you're going to be safe and protected all of your life if you just follow me and no problems are ever going to happen. The Bible makes it clear, in fact, that evil rails against God and his people. Evil hates God. Evil hates God's law. It hates God's commandments. And we, as God's people, look it straight in the face and we say, what's the worst thing that you could do to me? Kill me? Let's go. Bring it on. Assassinate my reputation. I have no unconfessed sin. Everything about me is known assassinate my my ideal picture of comfort and relaxation. Give me a break. That's what a prophetic ministry means. All the prophets, what did John the Baptist walk around wearing? Uncomfortable clothes and eating nasty food. The prophets are used to that, and that's what this type of a ministry is. It's a prophetic ministry. We will continue to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and one of the things that we must be resolved on is that when the evil comes out, we don't flinch. Now, that's going to take some time to train, okay? <laughs> right? Um, because uh, one of the things that I was telling a few people last week is, listen, um, the first time anybody gets shot at, they flinch, right? Like, that's a normal reaction. That's a real bullet! They're shooting real bullets! Right? Like, that's a, that's a normal... Obviously, I'm speaking allegorically here, right? No one's actually shooting at us yet. Um, but... We should keep that in mind, that whenever we see our brothers and sisters go into a firefight, a hypothetical firefight, and our reputations are on the line and we're being maligned publicly, it's normal. It's normal at first for us to flinch a little bit. That's a part of it. But we need to get there. We need to get where David is. Even though I walk the valley of the shadow of death and I see the evil and I know it's coming for me, I'm not going to be afraid of it. That's what we're fighting for, unwavering. Faithful to truth, and when we lock up on God's truth and we stand up to proclaim it, the weapons of the enemy don't faze us. Amen. This is what we're going to. This is where we're headed. That's what we want. But then there's the next question: of How on earth do we get there? Right. Well, what's interesting is he lays it out in the rest of the psalm. Well, not the rest of the psalm, but in the next three phrases. even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I'm reminded of death all around me, even though it looms over me, okay, and I see the evil before me, I'm not afraid of it. Why isn't he afraid of it? There's three things that we're going to go through. First, I fear no evil for, what does it say? For you are with me. Now, let's just spend a lot of time right there. And I'm going to spend a lot of time just on that first word. For you are with me. Now, isn't that interesting? Because you know what King David could have said right there? And he didn't say. He could have said, for the Lord is with me. Right? He could have said, for Yahweh is with me. But he didn't say that. He said, for you are with me. What does that mean? That means he's not talking about God. He's talking to him. Do you see? It means a personal proximity. Christians have this tremendous gift that we not only get to know God because he has revealed himself to us, to his word. We not only get to know about him through his word, but we get to know him. And that's the significance of the veil being torn after Jesus rose from the dead and the veil was torn. That means there's, there's no longer this separation. Now, now we are all priests. It's called the priesthood of all believers. The, now we are all priests before God. We all have access. We're all that close to him. We have such a special gift. We've been brought close to God by Christ, and we know him. In fact, John goes so far to say, this is John chapter 17, verse 3. You can write that down somewhere if you want to. And this is eternal life. Whoa! Okay. You've heard this verse before, but listen close. John says, you want to know what eternal life is? Here it is. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. That's eternal life. That's the best thing that you could possibly have. And you have it now. Do you see that? You have it now. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they know you. Now, now here we run into one of those classic English language problems, and I just kind of want to flesh this out a little bit. It's the same problem with the word love. Uh, I love tacos. I love my wife. Obviously, that's two different loves, right? You know, like, I don't love tacos the same way that I love my wife. If you love tacos the same way that you love your wife, you need marriage counseling, okay? Like, we got we to gotta figure that out. But here, it's the word "no," because we use one word for knowing about and knowing intimately, Okay? The Bible uses this intimate knowledge, often in the description of a, of a marriage, and it also tosses the word around a little bit in the idea of just, of just knowing about someone. You know about that there's a, a new governor of Louisiana, right? I know, I know about him, you know, but probably nobody in this room, maybe a few of you, have actually met him and know him. In fact, I would wager that no one in this room at all knows him intimately, knows about him, Right? One is loose and one is intimate. Um, a good example it would be horses. Okay, I know about horses. Me personally, they got they got four legs. They're huge. Okay, um, they could kill you if they wanted to. I know that about them. Um, I know they can be fast, and I know they're crazy strong. Okay, that's I know about horses, right? But I don't know horses. And I don't know a horse. See, the deal is, if I let's say I wanted to take my kid's horse riding, I don't just pull over on the side of the road and say, look, kid, a horse. Let's get on it. Why? Because I don't know that horse. Right? I don't know what it's going to do. I don't know what it's capable of. I don't know if it's used to people. I don't know if it's going to freak out and kill somebody or injure one of my kids. I wouldn't do that. That would be a bad judgment call. You see what I'm saying? I know about horses. I don't know that horse. But I need somebody who knows horses, you see what I'm saying, who knows them well so that they can tell me whether or not this specific horse is going to injure my child if I try to, to get them a, a ride. Let's dial it up a little bit farther and let, let's make it harder. What about your spouse? You, you can know, know about them, right? And that's, that's the dating phase, by the way. Did you know that? The, the dating phase of, of a relationship is the knowing about someone. Some of y'all are in the dating phase. Some of you want to be in the dating phase. You should listen very closely because this is important for you. You ready? The dating phase is knowing about someone. Well, she's pretty, she's a Christian, and I think she likes me. I'm gonna propose. You know, like, <laughs> boom, let's go. We've figured it out. And that's, that's about all that people go through really before they propose. I, I like you, you like me, and I think you're a Christian. Check. All right. Let's, let's swing for this. Now, there should be a little depth here, a little more than that, a little more knowing than that before you're walking down an aisle, but just as a general rule here. But after marriage, that's when you, you really start to know somebody, right? Because he, see, here's, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you're dating somebody, you still go home to your own house, Right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, we hung out all day. We've been together for six, seven hours. And then you go back to your own house, to your own bed, to your own place. You got your you you time all wrapped up, right? You get what I'm saying? But when you're married, what happens? There is none of that, right? You now occupy the same space 24 hours a day. You sleep in the same bed. You live in the same house. You eat the same meals. You raise the same children. You do the same things together. You're Utah, you time. That's not a thing anymore. It's not like the 50s, like on the Dick Van Dyke show, where everybody just kind of separates to their own beds. Like, No, you are together. Together. In the Lord. Right? That's where you really get to to know somebody. Right? That's where you really, those marriage vows start to matter. Oh, I didn't know... That you made that noise every time you ate. That noise is the most disgusting noise I've ever heard in my life. And now I'm married to the one that makes it. I can't leave. Oh, I didn't know that you smelled that way. But you smell that way. And now I'm married to the person that smells that way. Oh no. You see what I'm saying? I'm making jokes, but you get my—you you start to learn their ticks, you start to learn their habits, who they are, the things, the good things and the bad things come out in proximity, and you get to—you get to know them, and eventually you really start to do that well, or at least you should. A good Christian marriage is getting to know your spouse more and more throughout your entire life, and you realize, you know, just how deep that hole goes. It—it's a lot. You'll spend your whole life doing it, and you probably won't finish. Heads up, but that's the truth. And then we have knowing the Lord. How do how do we know how do we know the Lord? How do we well? First off, how do we know about Him? We know about Him because His His Word has been revealed to us, and we've heard it proclaimed by somebody else. We know the Lord. But we have this amazing gift of knowing him and growing in that intimacy because he continues to speak to us in his word. To the degree that you are connected to him in his word is the degree that you know him and the degree that you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and not have fear, right? If you're disconnected from his word and from his people and from the teaching of his word, then death is only ever terrifying to you. You walk through the valley of shadow of death and the evil comes out against you in whatever form it comes out against you and you are terrified. But if you want to know Him, you plunge yourself into His Word, into His people, you study all of it and you receive that good gift and that courage through His Word. And the more that you do it, the more that you see it. Okay, so here's what I mean. Whenever you first become a Christian, you learn about God and the way that he works through his word, and you're instructed, and you're taught, and you live, and you're, wow, look at what the Lord does. But then as you live as a Christian, here's what happens. You see his promises be true in your life. But you listen to me? This is incredibly important. You can know about God through his word and the way that he works, Right? But as you live as a Christian long enough, eventually you get to the place where you see his promises are true because you can point to them in your life. I, I saw God's promise to provide and protect for us. And I saw it play out in this way in my life. I, I saw God's promise that he cares for us as he cares for, for, for all things. And I saw it play out, play out in my life this way and this way and this way. I saw it happen. We see His faithfulness. We see Him keeping His promises. We see His answers to our prayers. We see His blessings and His care for us. We see Him going before us in battle, and we know Him. It moves a little bit, right? You move from, I knew about you, to, oh no, I know you. And I've seen the way that you care for me as yours. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even with all this evil all around me, I know him. And we can stand up against the evil, unafraid, because of that. All right, so that's the first one. You. All right, here's the second one. And since we know him, he says, you are with me. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are sent forth to do His work, and as we do it, to fear no evil. Why? Because He promises in Joshua and in Matthew and throughout the rest of the Bible that He is with us. Why are you not afraid of death? Because I know where I'm going. I know that the Lord is with me as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I know that death is possible. I see the evil in front of me, and I'm not afraid because He's with me. Because He's promised that He's with me, and so I believe Him, and I'm following Him all of my days. Amen? That's not hard. He promised to be with you. He is. But then he expands on it a little bit more. And this is the part where things get interesting, okay? How exactly is God with us? Well, he provides for us. Amen? We see that happen. We see his protection for us. Amen? We see his promises fulfilled, right? We, we see, sometimes we see other things happen too, though. He says, for you are with me. And then what's the next immediate phrase? How do we know God is with us? Your rod. Oh, see, now here we go. This is the uncomfortable part, but it's true. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Now we talked about this briefly before, but let's go through it again. How do you know that the Lord is with us? Well, his protection, his fulfillment of promises, his provision for your life, all of those things are true. But also there's the rod and the staff. What's a good shepherd do? He's got two tools. He's got a rod and a staff. The rod is that, is that stick that you see the re- shepherd uh, reach out with to the sheep whenever they start going off the trail and go, Fight! and they go, oh, oh, wrong way. Okay, all right, my bad. Right? My bad. You ever felt that before from Jesus? <laughs> Amen. Right? Going the wrong way. Fight! Oh, yeah, all right. My bad. Okay, got it. The rod is a tool of correction. Sharp. Quick strikes, reminders. I believe the rod can be occasionally your morning devotions where the Lord just laid the passages out for you before you even sat down. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, Jesus, I see it. I repent. A tool of correction to get the sheep going the direction that they ought to go. But the staff, no, my friends. That's for the real stubborn sheep. Remember the parable of Jesus where he says, I will leave the 99 and go after the one that's gone astray? The staff's for that sheep. See, we, we read the parable of Jesus leaving the 99 sheep and going after the one, and we romanticize it. Oh, when I go astray, he loves me so much, he comes and gets me. Yeah, with that staff. And what, how's that, What's it look like to be got with that staff? That's that big crook, right? He walks over to you with that staff and he wraps that bad boy around you and he drags you sheep screaming all the way back to the flock as you kick and shoot. Uh, no, too bad. You're going back. You're going back. The, the whole point of the staff is that he drags you against your will. <laughs> right? No, you're my sheep and you're coming with me. Amen. The rod and the staff are how we know that He is with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort? That does not sound comfortable. But for the true believer, we see it as a comfort because He will not let you. He will not let you leave. You belong to Him. He will give you the sharp strikes if you need them, the quick, the quick little splats if you need them. But He will also be faithful enough to put that hook around you and drag you back if He has to. He will not let you go. You are His, and that is the comfort. It's the same promise of the Scriptures of a comfort of a hand of a strong father, of the rod of correction coming from your father or from your mother. Because the Bible says that they do that because they love you. What does the Bible say? The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. That's another one of those verses that we, we romanticize. Ah, yes, it's because he loves me. The word discipline is there. The sharp strikes, right? The sharp strikes. The, the, the dragging back with the crook. In a parenting illustration, it's the rod of correction of a, of a father, of a mother to its child. It's because they love them. They discipline those whom he love. In fact, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 says that a father who hates his child doesn't discipline them. That's the comfort. When you receive the discipline of God, it's because He loves you. And He will not let you go to hell. He won't. You're His. And He will fight for you. Even if it means He fights you for you. Do you see? Oh, look, the poor little sheep. He left the 99 and went after the one. Just play that back properly in your brain going forward. When you're the one, He's coming. And he's going to win. And it's going to be good. So do you want to be comforted by the Lord? Do you want to be comforted by the Lord? As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, do you want to see evil and be brave and courageous because you stand with the Lord and His rod and staff comfort you? Do you want to be comforted in the time when you're walking in the shadow of death? Do you want to be comforted? Of course you do. We all do. Then look for His rod and staff in your life. Do you hear what I'm saying? The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and his rod and staff fall on those whom he loves. So do you want to be comforted? Look for his rod and staff. See the times that he's corrected you and be comforted because he loves you. That's an evidence of his love. See the times that he's dragged you back against your will and be comforted. That's evidence of his love. Let's get more specific, though. What exactly is the rod and staff? What is is the rod and staff in our lives? How does he point us in the right direction? How does he correct us along the way? How does he drag us back? There's several, but I want to go quickly through the list to just kind of help us think through this properly. First, it's commandments, right? First, it's God's commandments. What are some of the ways that God corrects us? We read his word and we're like, oh, shouldn't have done that. Whoops, I repent. Sorry, Lord. I have a That's one of the ways. Jesus says, not a jot, not a tittle shall pass away. It shall, it shall remain, for his law constrains us. Paul even describes it as a tutor, right? It keeps us in the lane. His law teaches us. It instructs us. It shows us where to go. Come to Sunday school if you're not. I have that put in my notes here to remember to remind you of that. Okay, next thing. It's not a wonder that we would fold to fear that we would let the shadow of death intimidate us into silence when we have no comfort, when we reject God's commandments, right? If you reject God's commandments, you reject one of the ways in which he intends to comfort you, and so of course you're afraid of death. Of course you're afraid of, of losing your life. Of course you're afraid of all that. Of course you can't have bravery and courage and stand up when you know you ought to because you're afraid because you don't have God's commandments, You've gotten rid of them. You've thrown them away. But if we are bound by his commandments, we can say like Martin Luther, here I stand. I can do no other. I will not yield on God's truth. This is what he says. I know it's true. I will not flinch. Shoot at me all you want. You want to be brave? You want to develop a backbone and thick skin? Do not yield on God's commandments. You want to be a pushover? Toss them away. That's the first one. To be constrained by God's commandments means that you know God's commandments and you hold fast to them. I know this is what he wants me to do. It might cost me everything, so be it, his promises are true. I look at the evil in the shadow of death and I fear it not. Amen. Second. All right, so the first one. His commandment. Second one is the way that He tests you. He tests us through a lot of ways. Amen? God tests us through a lot of ways. I, I look around this room and I see lots of stories of testing that the Lord has brought us through. He brings us through the fire to test us. Absolutely. Amen. What does the fire do? It refines the gold, doesn't it? It refines. I see some people that are in this room specifically because the God of the universe sent them through a hard trial. Amen. And you made it. And you're still here. Amen. One of the ways that he tests us is through health. Will you trust the Lord and stay faithful to his commands, even if it might kill you? This is one of the big tests, I would say, again, to go back to what we were saying before of of COVID. Many Many churches failed. And sadly, many churches closed. And many souls are still lost as a result. Maybe the way that he tests you is through your reputation, amen, the way that the world around you regards you. Oh, you go to that church, they don't seem very loving, right? When really, that's okay, I'll I'll talk about that more later, but that's part of it. Your reputation becoming your God and Him saying, are you willing to sacrifice your reputation for me? Maybe it's financial. Maybe He tests your willingness to obey His sexual commands. Maybe it's through your friendships. But the tests and trials all come, and they all come to refine you. Lean in. Don't lean away. They are good for you. He disciplines those whom He loves. He refines those whom He loves. He sends trials and tribulations on those whom He loves. Third, He also disciplines you. He also comforts you. The rod and staff are represented in His leaders. That means parents. That means uh, elected officials. That means elders and pastors. But you know what the, one of the hardest things for us to do with our leaders today? It's that S word. You know what I'm saying? Submit. Submit. We hate that word, don't we? Because we want the world to be flat. No, I answered... What is that expression? How does it go? Only God can judge me. Well, that's true. And it's worse, okay? like The judgment of God is worse than than somebody trying to tell you to repent and believe before you go before God to be judged by him. Do you see what I'm saying? The whole intention of being being told to repent and believe that so much of the world regards as judgmental is you actually saying, no, listen, God will judge you. That's the point. I don't want it to happen to you. I want you to believe and repent and be free before you go before God to be judged. Only God can judge me. Oh, please don't say that. I don't know, was that a line in a movie or something? Why is that such a popular phrase? It must have been a line in a movie. It had to have been. What God calls us to do is submit. And it's like a dirty word almost, isn't it? We will fight, we will argue, we will malign, we will slander our leaders. But submit? Ugh. And this, I mean, remember, we're sheep, right? We're sheep. Whenever, whenever you read Psalm 23, anytime it says, like, you know, anytime it talks about the shepherd, insert Jesus, and every time, every time a sheep is referenced, just picture yourself, okay? Like, you're the sheep. Okay. Sheep often don't want shepherds, do they? Well, I mean, okay, let me qualify this a little bit. Sheep often. Get away from the shepherds, right? If you watch a shepherd shepherding sheep, what are all the sheep actually really doing? They're running away from the shepherd. The shepherd just got really good at scaring them in a particular direction, right? But most of the time when you watch the sheep, they're like, ah! They don't want shepherds. They want to be free to do their own thing. And what happens when you let a sheep do its own thing? It dies every time dies to coyotes, it dies to starvation, it dies to... They don't even know how to eat the right grass. Right? But so often in our Christian culture, we've accepted and incentivized this idea that where we make ourselves the center of our worship services and not the shepherd. Do you get what I'm saying? So the sheep is self-centered. The sheep is like, no, I'm in control here, and I'm going over there to that good grass. It's it's the same thing that we do today. We make our worship services cater to what we want in a church, right? And, and we go to churches that do things that we like, I and mean, they really got that music that just slaps, you know, like, that bass speaker comes on and like I feel it in my chest. Like that, that music slaps. If you're here, you're not here for that purpose. Good job. Okay, good job. Or, 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 or I really I like those short sermons? You know what I'm talking about? Like the 15-minute sermon? Where like we can get in, get that sermon, get out. Woo! I feel better. I like the what's the Caleb slogan? Positive encouraging. I wanna be, no, bruh. Go read Lamentations. Go read Psalms and Proverbs. Go read the Bible as a whole. In order to get to the good news, you have to have the bad news first. In our softened Christian culture, we create entire worship services oriented around what the attendees might like. In and out, under an hour, big lights, big fancy stages, and entertaining music, and a well-articulated motivational speech. This isn't new. Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 through 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. One of the ways that God comforts us is through His leaders, through His under-shepherds, through parents, through righteous elected officials, through pastors, through elders. We need shepherds. We need shepherds. We need shepherds that are willing to tell us that we're wrong when we are. If you're not that, then you're a hireling. We need shepherds, not hirelings. We need men with backbones, proven, faithful, and who hold fast to God's law. All right, last thing. Where does the comfort come from? Last thing. This is more of an aside. Than anything else. But the rod and the staff sometimes is demonstrated to God's people through just being around older and more mature Christians to help. Now, they, they aren't over you or in charge of you, but they've got more experience than you. Amen? Now, now notice I, I, I say the word older, but then I immediately qualify it with more mature Christians, okay? Right? Because it's perfectly understandable that somebody could come into this church who didn't get saved until they were 65 years old, right? And, but, what, but the qualifier is the more mature Christian, the, more, the person who's been walk the older man or woman in the faith. That's what we're talking about. You don't just walk up to somebody necessarily only because they're older and say, will you disciple me? They might have only been a Christian for like six months. That would be a terrible idea. But you want to pursue people that are older in the faith than you. It's like... um. It's like sergeants in the battlefield with the privates. They've seen more action, right? They don't, they don't flinch when the bullets come anymore. They've been through a few firefights. They know, they know how to handle themselves. And just seeing mature Christians like that, are you, are you older, more mature Christians listening to me right now? I need you to listen to me. Because you are an example for these younger ones. They need to see your actions and be made brave by them. They need to see you standing up straight with a backbone, willing to follow the Lord Jesus no matter what the cost is, in order to help our younger brothers and sisters in the faith be brave. Have to. Just seeing mature Christians like that is an encouragement for the younger ones. Find them, get close, hold on. We are in the valley of the shadow of death. We live under the threat of death. The shadow of death hangs over us at all times, but there is comfort. There, where, there is a way for you to stand up and not be afraid of evil. It's there. Stay close to your shepherd. And, and that means you're within the reach of the rod and the staff. Stay close to your shepherd. You should stay close, and that is good. Because he loves you. Amen? And he disciplines those whom he loves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good word and your good truth and that you teach us and instruct us and admonish us. You exhort us. You rebuke us. All of those good things that we need. Please don't stop. Father, we confess that we have run away from your shepherd's staff that we have run away from your rod, that we have run away from you. Please forgive us. Help us to walk in faithfulness to you all of our days and forgive us for the times that we have wandered. Lord, I pray that we would pursue you wholly and completely, that we would rejoice in being close to you, And that we would look over our life and see the times that you have comforted us and thank you for them. Lord, you are good. Your mercies endure forever. Help us to meditate upon that goodness, remember it, see it in our lives through the times that your rod and staff have appeared. And may we be comforted by it. In Jesus' name, amen.